Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13. That's where we are today. We're, we're moving through the book of 1 Samuel in a series, Faithful Living in Fractured Times. Today, we're in chapter 13. The key concept this morning is actually a verse from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It's this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's the point that we'll see from 1 Samuel chapter 13. While you're finding that, let's review, kind of come to catch up where we are in the story. The people of Israel have called for a king, and they have stated their reasons very pointedly in chapter 8, verse 20. They say, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king we can see because we want to be like the other nations. We want to blend in. We don't want to be so different, so unique. We're tired of that, and we want a king who will be visibly fighting our battles. We don't want an invisible king anymore that we have to take on faith that he's watching us from heaven and watching over us. We want a king we can see, and so Saul is made their first king. Finally, a king that we can see, and in fact, Saul's story starts out very well. Uh, we, uh, we saw him uh, uh, coronated last week, and at first he hits all the right notes. He's, he's humble when he's chosen. He's not resentful when he's criticized, and he is criticized almost immediately uh, at becoming the king. He's a good leader, and, and when the Ammonites try to humiliate the people of Jabesh-Gilead in chapter 11, Saul shows us that he is a shrewd leader in battle. But actually, the victory over the Ammonites in chapter 11 and his official coronation are the high points of Saul's career. Unfortunately for King Saul, it's pretty much all downhill from there. And so by the time we get to our passage, chapter 13, some years have passed, and once again the Israelites are at war, and they are at war with their old enemies, the, the Philistines, And they're trying to drive the Philistines out from the outposts that the Philistines have taken in the land of Israel. In the beginning of chapter 13, Prince Jonathan, Saul's son, leads a raid against the Philistines. And the Philistines now respond by pulling together a massive army to uh, fight against the Israelites. And so Saul has to respond. So he, he um, uh, um, pulls together an army of his own, and, he, and he's stationed in Gilgal. And Samuel has told Saul, uh, amass your forces in Gilgal and wait there because I'm going to come and I will offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice will be uh, the, the key for you to gain God's blessing for the battle that is about to come. The order is wait at Gilgal. You see, waiting shows trust. Waiting shows humility. Waiting is a statement. When you're waiting, you're saying, I'm not in charge here. I have to submit to the timing of someone else. But proud people don't like to wait. And Saul didn't like to wait. And so we pick up the reading in chapter 7. Of a verse, thir- of, excuse me, verse seven of chapter thirteen, and it says this. Some, uh, and let's pick up the reading in the middle of the verse. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the trips, uh, troops with him were quaking with fear. 
He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to meet him. Verse 11, What have you done? asked Samuel. We'll start there. Stop there for a moment. Saul had waited seven days. Now that was the time that Samuel had mentioned. Wait, I'll be down in seven days. And in those seven days, time was precious. His army was scared. Each day, Saul was scanning the horizon to see if Samuel was going to come. And finally, near desperation, Saul offers the sacrifice himself. He's attempting to rally the troops together to get the battle started. This period of this seven days, this was a test for Saul. But the test was not, will you be able to grab the bull by the horns and take charge in leadership when necessary? The test was not, will you take initiative? The test was, will you obey and patiently wait? And Saul fails that crucial test. You see, waiting is part of the way that God refines us in our life. I read an article uh, called Forged by Fire by Bob Record, and it talks about the smelting process of iron ore, uh, taking that iron ore and making it into a, a girder that will support a, a, a bridge or something like that. And in that article, he talks about how important it is for the cooling process to go slow. It's vital to ensure that the metal doesn't develop cracks, and sometimes the cracks and imperfections are almost uh, invisible. You really can't see them with the naked eye, but they're there. And when that girder is put under strain, it will fail. You see, he says, you can't rush the cool down. If you rush the cool down, you're going to ruin the product. So you have to wait. And the same is true for us, because while we wait, we learn patience. While we wait, we gain maturity. While we wait, we grow in our trust in God. It's a simple matter of obedience. When you're told to wait, you need to wait. But sometimes that's hard to obey. Henry Blackaby is famous for his best-selling book, Experiencing God. And he tells the story of the first funeral he ever did as a young pastor. It was a heartbreaking funeral. A young girl, the firstborn child of a, a young couple, the first grandchild in an extended family. But she, he says, and I'm, I'm going to quote now, he says, Unfortunately, this girl was spoiled. While visiting the little girl's home, I observed that she loved to ignore her parents' instructions. When they told her to come, she went. When they told her to sit down, she stood up. And her parents laughed, finding her behavior cute. But it all came to a tragic end one day when she ran into the streets and her parents were yelling for her to stop, stop, but she darted out between two parked cars right into the path of an oncoming vehicle. And he says this, as a young pastor, this was a profound lesson for me. I realized I must teach God's people not only to recognize His voice, but immediately to obey when you hear it. Recognize His voice and obey. This is just what Saul failed to do. The command of God has come through his servant Samuel. 
And Saul's failure to obey that command comes at a high price. See, he started off humble, even timid. But this event is years later. And by this time, he had come to believe that he could be the solution to any problem. He has come to believe that as king, he's the committee of one that can make all the decisions. His attitude has changed from the man who was hiding among the baggage to the man today, years later, leading the nation, leading the army. He's begun to believe his publicity, and he likes the rock star treatment. Hank Ketchum is is the creator of Dennis the Menace. He once said this, Flattery is like chewing gum. Enjoy it, but don't swallow. But Saul has swallowed. He's been swallowing the flattery, and it's gone to his head. And in this setting, he is facing a much stronger army. The Philistine army was a greater military power. They had a greater size. They had greater technology. And when I say technology, what I mean is they had wooden chariots strengthened by iron. And as you read through uh, 1 Samuel and your companion uh, commentary, you'll see that there was no blacksmith in Israel. They didn't have the technology uh, that, that the Philistines did. And the Philistines were keeping outposts in the, la- in the land of Israel, and from those outposts, they would raid the villages. And so this was what the King Saul and, and Prince Jonathan were trying to get rid of. But now things have come to a head, and the two armies are poised for war. But one of those armies was confident and large and well-equipped and well-tested. And one of those armies was hurriedly pulled together with less troops, less equipment, less training. And when it was apparent that Israel was really at a distinct disadvantage, the result was mass desertions. Go back to verse 6. It says, When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. This is not exactly a confidence-inspiring situation, right? When your army is hiding in in cisterns and in pits and, and, and kind of deserting the front lines, what is a leader to do? It seems like this is the moment that a leader needs to step into the breach and take charge. However, Samuel... The high priest and prophet, under the direction of God, has given Saul instructions, proceed to Gilgal and wait there. Samuel was going to come and make the sacrifice. And it was from that sacrifice that they would derive God's blessing in the battle. But Samuel is delayed in coming. And And seven days comes and goes. And Saul sees the nervousness of his troops. And the seventh day, of course, he sees some of them are actually leaving. His already small army is shrinking. And Saul, it seems, has read the leadership books of his day, the assertiveness training manuals. He knows something needs to be done. What would a strong leader do here? Step in and take charge. Otherwise, this whole thing is going to come crashing down. In today's leadership language, when you go to seminars and read leadership books, they call it a bias for action. Leaders should have a bias for action, being ready to act. 
In fact, I read an interview with a, a business leader, a secular businessman, and, and he runs a large corporation and he hires managers that manage huge divisions of people. He says, whenever I'm going to hire a manager to manage a, a division and he's going to be over, you know, over a bunch of people, I always give him what I call or her, give her the, 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 the driver test. And what he means by that is literally he has the person get behind the wheel of the car and drive someplace, to a lunch or someplace, and he lets them drive. And while they drive, he observes them. And what he's looking for, he says, I'm looking to see, do they gravitate to the fast lane? And when they're, when they're, they're in the fast lane, do they try to get ahead of the other cars in front? Do they f fill in? In other words, he says, I want aggressive drivers. Because if he's an aggressive driver, then I know he has a bias for action. And that's what I'm looking for in the leaders that I hire, a bias for action. And that's just human nature. That's kind of the, what we think a leader ought to be. But a leader who is leading God's people first needs to be a follower, first needs to be an obeyer. And Samuel is delayed in his coming. Saul has this bias for action. And so he says, I'll make the sacrifice myself. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to jump in. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't illegal for him to do that. Uh, we see King David offer a burnt sacrificing when, when he's the king. So it's not per se out of bounds, but he has been told to wait. And that's what he did not do. No doubt he's thinking, well, I'm the king. The situation is dire. Samuel is late. I must do something. I have to use my own judgment here. Now, we're not sure how long Saul waited to after the, the seventh day. Maybe it was the seventh day plus one minute, or maybe it was on the eighth day or the ninth, whatever. But the test was, will you simply obey? Simply be willing to faithfully follow what you have heard from God. And in this situation... It is not do something, it is do nothing, wait. That was his job. But sometimes waiting is the hardest thing of all. And so King Saul jumped in. And how, how did he come to this mindset, to this failure? The first thing that happened as, in, as he was slipping down towards this failure was he adopted what I call a loophole mentality. You know what a loophole is? Originally, a loophole was what we call those little slits in uh, castle walls from which they would fire the arrows as the enemy approached the castle. They were little slits or little, little holes. The enemy couldn't shoot in there, or at least it would be extremely difficult, but you could shoot out as the troops came your way. Now that word has come into our usage as the little verbal hole in a contract or in a legal document that can allow us to kind of wiggle through and not obey the purpose of the document or the contract. It's a loophole that I can get through so I don't have to uh, uh, obey what I'm, um, I say I'm agreeing to. If you're a parent, you deal with loopholes all the time. You have to carefully instruct your children what you want them to do and avoid any kind of misunderstanding in loophole because if you don't, if you're not clear, they will find the loophole. I was talking to our, Sylvia and I were talking to our neighbor uh, a while ago and we we're chatting uh, about kids and raising kids. She has two boys 
And uh, she told about a time when uh, she was uh, away from the home, that boys were home, and she had just done a load of laundry. She called them, and one of the boys answered, and he, she said, will you take the clothes out of the laundry now that it's done and put, it, put them in the dryer? No problem. Took the clothes, put them in the dryer. She got home about two hours later, pulled in and went, went into the uh, laundry room expecting to be able to fold the clothes. But in the dryer, there was just a big mass of wet, soggy clothes. And when she went to him, he said, well, you didn't tell me to turn the dryer on, right? It's a loophole. So and that's the mentality. And, and, and Saul has that mentality here. You know, it's a, it's a loophole. Samuel is not here. Samuel's not on time. And I guess maybe seven days plus one minute, now I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And I want to step in. We need to beware of loophole thinking. Because really what it is, it's a way of trying to rationalize away our disobedience. Trying to get, get an excuse, get a reason why it makes sense that we are not obeying what God has asked us to do. Saul disobeys as he plunges through the loophole. Secondly, Saul shows us that in his pride, he's not willing to repent when he is confronted, but rather he shifts the blame on others. Uh, go to verses 11 and 12. I don't think we have this on the screen, but, but we stopped off with 11. It says, What have you done? asked Samuel. And Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt sacrifice. You see, he's, he's shifting blame on others. You know, well, you were late. And, and you were late and the men were scattering and the Philistines are assembling. Hey, I'm the victim here. You should be happy that I stepped in and tried to do the sacrifice. Shifting blame away instead of saying, I know, I'm sorry, I disobeyed. Blame shifting comes all too easily. It's very human. We all do it. It was part of the fall way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that was forbidden. And finally, when God confronted Adam, he says in chapter 3, verse 12, the woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree. It's her fault. It's her problem. Shifting blame. And these things emerge as character flaws in Saul stemming from his pride. First of all, just having this bias for action, even though he's told to wait, putting that aside, thinking that he can be the solution to any issue that he faces. And then when confronted, failing to admit his failure, failing to be a person with a repentant heart, shifting blame on those around him. But there is an underlying mistake that Saul is making kind of a foundational mistake that we see him, him, him uh, engage in. And that foundational mistake also stems from pride, and that is thinking that the battle was his to win rather than the battle was God's to win. It's very easy to slip into a mindset that leaves out the fact that there is a supernatural world around us, that there is a God who watches over us, that there is a Lord who listens to our prayers and is ready to respond to help us meet the needs that we're facing. 
It's very easy to slip into a mindset that says, it looks like the problems that I face are insurmountable. And so instead of waiting upon God and His timing and His solution, I have to start chipping away at them myself, my way. Even though it looks impossible. This battle is impossible for Saul to win. His army is small. His people are not well armed. They're not well trained. The Philistines are going to win this victory if it's just fought on, a, on the human level. They have learned this before against the Philistines. And God has intervened before and they've seen the victory. But somehow, Saul just doesn't get it. We're hopelessly outnumbered. We're outgunned. We're outclassed. We're about to get clobbered. So I have to do something rather than recognize the only way I win here is with God on my side. That's the only way I win. Human efforts are not going to be the solution. Human thinking and a demonstration of pride is not going to be the answer. He had a chance to have that blessing from the Almighty, but instead, grasping for his own solutions, he blows it. And there's, we see that failure of prideful logic here because he kind of, kind of almost says the right things, I do by, well, while doing the wrong things. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I, have, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Why? Because he wanted God's blessing. But he's, he's disobeying God's command while seeking God's blessing as if you disobey God to get on God's good side rather than simply and humbly obeying. He's trapped by a prideful, twisted logic and his unwillingness to repent. But an acknowledgement, an honest repentance is what's called for here. And we need to be careful that we don't slip into twisted logic of pride because repentance comes hard. There are times when we will blow it. One author writes this, we live in a century where we've created a version of Christianity that can hardly even pronounce the word repentance. But that is a deep daily recognition of our sinfulness, that I need to turn and receive forgiveness. I need to turn every day and say, God, what is in store for me today? And I'm sorry if I blew it yesterday. Without it, we're just hoping to coast through life and hoping that nobody asks any questions, especially God. But Samuel comes and confronts Saul. What have you done? And he announces the consequences of his disobedience. But now your kingdom will not endure. Verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This disobedience will cost him. It will cost him his kingship. It will cost him his legacy. Saul is disqualified. Already God is seeking a replacement. And this teaches us a lesson for the way that we deal with people today and maybe at, at the work or at school or wherever we're, we're, we're working with other people. And the lesson is this, no one is indispensable. No one is indispensable. Pride makes you feel like you're indispensable. Like they, they're, they're not going to be able to handle this without me. They need me. If it wasn't for me, everything would be falling apart. And with that idea in mind, people begin to think that they're institutions. That, that, that absolutely must rely on my efforts and, and my smarts. But it is only God who is indispensable. 
No one is indispensable. We dare not feel ourselves to be institutions because the example of Saul shows us that he wants to have all the power. And in, in, in being that committee of one that sol solves every problem, he is disqualified by his pride. And the stage is set for David, the one that God is looking for. Verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the leader of his people. So what is God looking for today? The same thing. God is looking for those who will serve Him with humble hearts, serve Him in obedience, willing servants, that's knowing it's not about outward success, it's not about outward appearance. God is not looking for the perfect heart. He knows we're fallen. He's not looking, he's, he is looking for the humble heart, the honest heart. He's looking for the heart willing to repent when wrong in humility and say yes to the next step in the walk by faith. He's, willing, he's looking for people who are obedient to what He says, obedient to follow Him, who will resist the example we see in Saul that coming to a level of pride, He takes it on Himself rather than looking to the Lord. So as I step away from this passage, I ask myself, what's the lesson here? And maybe you're thinking, well, the lesson is to seek humility and go against the example of Saul. But that's not the lesson, because when you seek humility, seeking humility head-on is just like seeking happiness head-on. You'll never get it that way. In order to find happiness, seek purpose and contentment, and you get happiness thrown in. And in order to find humility, seek obedience, and you'll get humility thrown in. Seeking humility will soon uh, head-on. Chasing after that head on, soon, very soon Satan whispers into our ears, aren't you proud about how humble you are? You'll never get humility head on. Seek obedience. That's the lesson. Simple, faithful obedience. When God says wait, we wait. When God says go, we go. And in all of that, we are thankful that in the waiting times, God is refining us, growing us in His grace. That's what He's doing. Some of us right now are in the waiting times. Allow God to grow you. Seek obedience and you will kill pride. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that oftentimes we learn by negative examples in Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that as You tell the stories of the things that have happened as You have dealt with humanity, that it's not all just peaches and cream, that there are times when uh, people are in rebellion. And we see that example and we, we see the echo of that and hear the echo of that in our own hearts. Lord, help us not to fall prey to that. We want to seek obedience, simple, faithful, humble obedience. Enable us to recognize your voice, to read your word, to obey what we see here. And as we do, Lord, help us to bring you glory. For we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.